0: Well, as I've been seeking to show you, in Ephesians 2, Paul is articulating his um, understanding and vision of what the church is as a people gathered from different ethnicities, particularly breaking the Jew-Gentile divide, but how that also speaks into our context of people as people from very many nations and uh, what we now call races, And uh, different people groups drawn into the experience of being one in Christ. And as Paul's articulating this, um, showing what Christ has accomplished to draw us together in himself, he brings it to a kind of focus or conclusion, explains where it is that we have landed as God's people, what it is that God has accomplished in us. And this comes at the end of Ephesians 2. So I want to read from verse 19 to the end of that chapter. He says, so then... the church. The church had captivated the Apostle Paul as the vehicle through which God was going to bring redemption to this world. And I know that that seems almost impossible to state in this day and age, because um, a couple of millennia on, we are facing something of the backlash against many of the failures of the church globally. And people's experiences of churches locally. I know this um, as, you know, as a pastor in a context in a kind of post-Christendom world like um, we have here in the UK. It is an awkward thing to meet a new person, as I do frequently, um, who's not a churchgoer. And then inevitably the question arises, what is it that you do for a living? And to have to then tell them what I do, not because I'm ashamed of my work, but rather because... Um, it's this, I can never predict how they're going to react. Some people are very kind and will ask nice questions and be like, tell me more about that. Tell me about um, what you do and what that looks like. And it's lovely to be able to explain to people something of the amazing reality of the church. But then very often the opposite is true. And it's like the oxygen just sucked out of the room and eye contact is averted and the person sometimes physically turned away from me begin to reverse out of the conversation (laughs) as quickly as possible because people feel a kind of gut level intuitive a reaction to the idea of church and it's not that they have a problem necessarily with being spiritual in the vaguest sense but they have a problem with the institution of the church And I know that even in our midst, in a gathering like this, there'll be many of you, you feel different things when you think about church. There are those of us that we have already mentioned who feel profound gratitude and who pour your life out for the sake of God's people in very real and tangible ways and you're committed and you're regular and you're you're embedded in the life of a church. And there are those who are slightly more ambivalent, I think who maybe hover at the edges of church life, uh, dip in now and then, but are rarely seen and rarely known as well. And uh, that's reflected in your actions, that heart posture. And then there are those who, you know, really feel some measure of um, some some other emotion, whether it's um, a burnout or a sense of suspicion around churches or even anger and hostility at what church has done historically and in different contexts, or what you've experienced. And I understand all of this. I recognize that there are issues, and it's very important for you to to be able to process some of that and and think this through for yourself. But when when you meet the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to a church that he had founded, you encounter a man who is fanatically passionate about the work he's engaged in, of planting and strengthening churches through the preaching of the gospel and through writing letters such as this. In the very next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 10, he'll say this. He'll say that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's saying that God has made his unfathomable power and wisdom visible in and through the organization or organism or institution that is the church. And it often strikes me that our calling, therefore, is to move towards the heart of God on on the church and what the church is and meant to be, rather than be shaped by the culture or even past experiences necessarily. And the more we see of what God intends for his people and what the church is meant to be and do, the more our hearts can be lit with a passion for the beauty of the bride of Christ. Paul was inflamed, in that sense, with a passionate, zealous heart. In one of his letters that comes just a little later in the New Testament, in Colossians, he can say something like this, and this is true if you know anything about Paul's life. He can say, I rejoice in my sufferings. And He means there the sufferings that he endured through endless miles of travel, through persecution, being stoned, imprisoned, all the things that he endured, sometimes flogged on numerous occasions, actually, where his back would be lacerated. So when he says sufferings, he doesn't mean um, the, the kind of things that you and I necessarily associate. He means, he means at, the, at the very cold face, ex- extreme pain, extreme agony on behalf of the work that he was doing, or on, a, on account of it, I should say. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, for you, God's people. And in my flesh, I'm filling up What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. He's not implying there that Jesus didn't accomplish everything that needed to be achieved for us on the cross. Christ suffered and he finished his work there for us. But what he is saying is that in order for the work of Christ to be made known among the nations and for people like me and you to come into the good of what Christ achieved for us on the cross, people have had to suffer. Paul had to suffer. Anyone who's involved in pouring their life out for the work of God's people will tell you stories of pain and suffering that that has involved, but they'll also say in a heartbeat, it's worth it. It's worth it. Look what God is building. Isn't it beautiful? I want to ask you the question, what is it that Paul saw? What is it that captivated him? What is it that gripped his heart? you need to see it too. There's a fable that gets um, passed around um, in sort of leadership seminars and books and, and, uh, and anyone who's kind of wanting to um, uh, teach on the nature of good leadership, there's a fable or a parable that's been passed around many times in which the image of an ancient cathedral is called. And you can think of Westminster Abbey just across the river from us where the Queen's service took place. That building, or certainly a part of it, stood for over a 1,000 years mind-boggling, isn't it, to think of that? And if you went back a 1,000 years to when when it was first being constructed, you'd meet the stonemasons in what was, you know, otherwise fairly flat landscape of maybe predominantly wooden structures. Um, This side of the river was all marshland, by the way. There was not much, much going on over here. And there... This great stone structure of the abbey was was beginning to be built. And if you were to go and ask the stonemasons what they were doing, you might meet one who say, well, what are you doing? And he'd say, well, I'm chiseling stone. That's all he did from the moment he woke up to the moment he went home to eat and sleep. He chiseled stone for a pittance. You might go to the next man and ask him, what are you doing? And perhaps with a little bit more enlightenment or insight, he might say, well, I'm building a wall. And, of course, that gives him a little bit more motive for his day-to-day work. You can see something happening. Okay, I'm chiseling stone, but I'm part of that. And then you ask the third man, what are you doing? He says, I am building a cathedral to the glory of God. And of course, most of the guys who are involved in the construction of these uh, great structures never saw the end of their work because it took generations to build buildings like that by hand. But you can well imagine how much more motivated they would have been. Those individuals who could see in their mind's eye what it was that they were involved in building and how that would give meaning and purpose and passion to the present. And the same is true of you and me. The degree to which you can see the wisdom and the goodness and the power of God in his desire to Save the world through the church, the more you will want to give yourself to her. What is it that we are meant to see? What is it that we're meant to understand? What is it that's uniquely extraordinary about the church? That's what I want us to wrestle with. And I'm going to show you four things from this passage. The first is this that you, the church of God, you are built upon the gospel. This is what Paul is saying here as the unique power that can explain and solely has the ability to explain the miracle, the supernatural miracle of the church as it's existed all through the world. It's there in in verse 20 when he says that you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, I just realized I missed out a very key explanation here, so I'm going to backtrack one minute and just explain something. When Paul's coming to the climax of this chapter and explaining what it is that the church is and what you are benefiting in, he shifts rapidly between three different metaphors. Um, which is terrible English if you went to English literature and were taught how to write you 're not meant to mix your metaphors, but he does it and he does it shamelessly because he, he just all the ideas tumble out of him. I often think The Apostle Paul was a lot like Jeremy, just lots of words all the time, lots of ideas. And I think that's what's going on here. He's probably, probably, uh, uh, what's the word, dictating this letter to an amanuensis, a secretary who's scribing. And he doesn't care about the ill discipline. It's just flowing out of him. And he he uses three different pictures to talk about the church. He says, first of all, you were strangers and aliens, but now you're fellow citizens with the saints. So the first image that he drops in there is the idea of citizenship. In the ancient world, you were a citizen of a city, not necessarily of a state. So you could be a citizen of the city of Rome, or the citizen of Athens, or of Ephesus. But here's the thing you have to understand. Only a tiny percentage of the Ephesians were citizens of their own city. And therefore, Paul is trying to put across the incredible privilege to be a citizen of God's city. The rights and privileges that that gives to you. You were no one, he's saying, but now you're a citizen of the eternal city. Then he tumbles into another metaphor because he says, having said your fellow citizens were the saints, he says, and members of the household of God. And we've already counted this one in the letter to the Ephesians, but this is the picture of the church or God's family as a household. With the father overseeing his household, and within the context of a household, of course, there were many types of roles, including um, servants or slaves, and uh, people who would labor in in the business of the household, but there were the sons, those who would be the inheritors. And he's already called us the sons of God in chapter 1. So from citizenship to membership in a household, and then he lands on this third picture. It's the image of the temple. The image of a temple. They knew temples well because they had a giant temple to Artemis in in, in Ephesus. But for Paul, this is referencing the grandeur, the beauty, the glory of the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, and then bringing us to an understanding that that is what God is building in and through his church. And that's what we need to understand and what I failed to explain to you, which makes a lot more sense in my first point. You are built upon the gospel. You're built, he says, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now here's the thing, every organization or institution is built upon something, some idea, some conviction, some set of principles, everything is built upon something. You can say that's true at the national level. A nation like ours, we have an unwritten constitution, but it's very much there, governing and directing the ethos and culture that we live within. America has a more obvious situation. Everything in America is more obvious, isn't it? But they have, they have a written constitution and a national anthem, which they sing regularly to, to remind themselves that they are the land of the free and the home of the brave. If you want to understand, Americans just... He listen to their national anthem, and you'll get a great deal of insight into that people because it governs the way you think and what you feel is true about yourself. And every organization or institution has a founding principle that guides and shapes and directs it. What is it that guides and shapes the church? And the answer is here. It's the gospel. He says that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which in my mind undoubtedly means the teaching. That they received. Because look down at chapter 3, verse 4. He says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other ger- generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's saying that he, along with a, a group of individuals, apostles and prophets, they were the recipients of a world-changing revelation or insight by which God showed them what it is that Christ had accomplished by his death and his resurrection, an action that came without explanation from Jesus, but which then had to be understood in the light of Old Testament Scripture and by the power of the Spirit so that men like the Apostle Paul saw what had never been seen before, God's plan and intention to save the world through what Jesus had accomplished for us upon the cross. That's the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then he adds Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is a common picture in scripture. The cornerstone was the most important block in the building of a structure in the ancient world. We have cornerstones all around um, London. You see them on the outside of buildings, but they're just ornamental. They often have carved into them the names of the person or people who laid the stone. But in the ancient world, the cornerstone was the most fundamental uh, part of the structure. And sometimes they were the size of cars. I've seen stones on the wall of of Herod's temple, which you can still see the foundations of that in Jerusalem to this day. Some of those stones are the size of buses. And the cornerstone, therefore, was laid into place in order to ensure that the the rest of the structure grew up straight and true in line with that well-laid first stone. And I believe it is my, my, my conviction that if we accomplish nothing else as pastors and as a church, our greatest call is to be attached to and fixed to and built upon the gospel of Jesus. I think this is important to restate in a day and age like ours where the church is very much on the retreat. And many people have articulated their fears and concerns, the various powers that oppose the church. And there are different suggestions about what is most dangerous to the life and health of the church, particularly in the Western world. And some people have said, well, the greatest danger is the rise in hostility that could give birth to persecution. But I don't think that's the greatest danger. There are churches all around the world, even to this day and all through history, that have endured the worst hostilities and persecutions. And as the early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's not that we would ever wish these things upon ourselves, but the fact remains that wherever people attempt to squash and kill the life of God's church, it only seems to have the effect fanning the flames and spreading the sparks of the life of God elsewhere. It happens in the book of Acts. You can read about it in Acts chapter 8. A persecution lands on the Jerusalem church. At that time, one church, the only church. And it has the unintended consequence of spreading the gospel out from there because suddenly when persecution lands on the church in Jerusalem, the people leave, but they leave with Jesus it's not persecution or hostility we should be worried about. Other people say, look, it's, it's the great philosophies and ideologies and ideas of the present age that we're living in the age of secularism and of science and rationalism. And these things are deeply antagonistic to faith because faith is, is, is built upon that which we cannot see. And of course, these things are dangerous. and Many kids have been swept along and lost their faith Um, having grown up in believing households because they encounter compelling ideas in school and then in university or wherever else they go in life and they they begin to scorn the faith that they grew up with. I recognize it's a genuine problem. But what you also see is the bankruptcy of a godless worldview that does not seem to be able to deliver for people answers to their deepest questions that resonate with the reality of God, answers around truth and goodness and beauty and morality, which a secular worldview cannot speak to or explain. And so I don't think that's the biggest problem. And other people think, well, the greatest threat facing the church today is the incredible push of progressive liberal values in terms of the moral culture that we're living in. And of course, Any of you will recognize that living as we do in the center of a hedonistic age, in a city like this, where every pleasure imaginable is yours, should you choose to go after it, and you're being drawn into um, the accumulation of wealth and gratification through achievement, and also, of course, sexual vice of of any and all kinds, Living in an age like this, I recognize that's a real problem for all of us and a threat to our faith and a threat to the life and health of the church, but even that isn't the greatest danger we face. On the contrary, in many ways, the darker that the world gets and the more hostile it gets to the Christian ethos, the more ripe it is for Jesus. You read the history book and you you learn about the history of revivals when God has done great things among people. It seems to me they almost always come on the back of an era of decadence and opulence and godlessness because people get sick of their own sin. All these things are genuine problems, I grant, but the greatest danger the church can ever face is within our own walls. It's when the church of Jesus deviates from the gospel. From our pure, unashamed confidence in the reality of who Jesus is as a son of God. His perfect accomplishments for us. The blood that's shed to atone for our sin. The summons to repent of our sin and to follow him wholeheartedly. And the full-blooded proclamation of that gospel to the nations. And the more churches seek to flirt with the world in which we are placed, becoming more acceptable by toning down or altering the message, the more they are signing their own death certificate, digging their own grave. But thanks be to God that wherever Christ is proclaimed and believed and held as precious as I believe he is among us, his life strength Paul says using the same analogy 1 Corinthians 3 he's describing his own work in the very same terms of building a temple and he says according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder I laid a foundation someone else is building upon it let each one take care how he builds upon it for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid which is Jesus Christ. Dear brother and sister, I give thanks for this gospel. When we started this church, it was one of our most explicit aims to want to see the church flourish and grow through no other means but through the relentless preaching of Jesus and the treasuring of Jesus in our conversation, and our community, and our fellowship. You can grow churches on other things. And it's possible to create something that looks like a church, but that is built upon something other than Jesus. But friends, my exhortation to myself as well as to every one of you is let us build on Christ. Let us cling to him, his atonement, his accomplishments. There is no one like Jesus. You are built on the foundation of Christ, and that is the unique thing that we begin with. Another thing I would add here is that you are joined to each other. Paul says this in two different ways here. But he says in verse 21, as he's describing the structure of this thing growing, he says, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now the image here is an image that's echoed elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly in 1 Peter 2, where you and I are described as being like living stones forming a temple because, of course, The church is not not dependent upon actual physical, literal buildings. So this is a metaphor, but it's something more real and more permanent in a sense than any temple that men have built. And you and I are stones in that structure. And he's saying something like this. That when God found you, he was like a man going into a quarry where stones are, are dug out of the side of mountains for the purpose of building buildings and you're carved out of the rock out of obscurity out of a life separated from God and then he took hold of you and said you belong to me now and then God continued his work in your life of sh- chipping away and shaping like a, a mason does with his hammer and chisel to begin to knock off the edges God began his work in you, in which he began to shape you and conform you to become like your savior, Jesus. That's his promise to you, and he's not finished yet, he's going to continue that. Hold on to him. You're frustrated with yourself, you're sick of your sin. Jesus hasn't finished with you, but that's not all he does, he doesn't just take you out from the quarry and leave you there as an isolated stone. Part of your Whole reason for being saved is to then be put into the structure that he is building. You're being built together, he says, into this temple. Now, this has to be emphasized in a day and age in which we are so enamored with, captivated by the idea of me. I don't mean me, <laughs> you captivated by me, heaven forbid. I mean, each one of us is captivated with ourselves we're living in the age of individualism in which you're encouraged to spend much time thinking about yourself monitoring your well-being thinking about your passions your goals your dreams it's all about you 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 or me 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 and that militates against the notion of community and of family and of what God is doing his work and it leads people into spiritual tragedy in which they isolate themselves from churches And that will inevitably, of course, lead to spiritual decline. It will inevitably lead to a spiritual loneliness. But most tragically of all, it means you miss out on the true calling that God has called you for, which is to offer yourself in service to and to be part of the church. That's what Paul saw for these believers and what the Lord has intended for you, brother or sister. How does that work out? Well, that deserves much time. We could double-click and preach a sermon on any of these ideas, but it means things like this. It means being part of a fellowship or a community. It doesn't have to be this one. But it means that your life is embedded in a, a local church. It means offering your gift. When the Lord saved you. He sanctified the gifts that He would put into you biologically, so to speak, or through your experiences, but he also filled you with your spirit and began to give you supernatural grace gifts, as the New Testament calls them. Not for the purpose of you sitting in isolation, meeting your own needs, but for the purpose of blessing the church. Offering your gift. Another part of this would be worshiping with God's people. I love how Peter expresses this What's a temple for? A temple is a place of worship. When Peter describes these living stones being put together, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Part of the reason you must belong to a local church like this and must be here Sunday by Sunday and must come ready, spiritually prepared to worship is because God loves our worship and he saved you in order that his son Jesus would be glorified in the worship of his people. How easily, by the way, and tragically, we turn this back around again on ourselves. How do we do that? We ask each other, how did you find the worship today? Well, I found it good or I found it a bit dull or whatever. How we found it? You think, I don't really care what you think or what I think about the worship. It only matters what Jesus thinks, right? Right? Worship is for him, not for you, not for me, not to deliver a certain experience. It's for him. It's our service. It's our sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of praise. So, brother, sister, I want to say this in the kindest way possible. I don't care how you feel. You wake up on a Sunday, you don't feel like going to church. It doesn't matter. You belong to Jesus. You form a temple, and it's for him. Being built together, joined to each other. Don't let the enemy destroy that. The third thing he tells us about the structure and about us as God's people is that then you are filled with the spirit of God. Now this is true at the level of the individual. and I don't want to lose sight of the fact that you and I enjoy a personal relationship with God and that is crucial to our experience of faith. When the Bible talks about the Spirit of God at work in us, it does speak frequently about you being a, the one in whom the Spirit resides, lives, dwells, makes his residence in home. It's there in 1 Corinthians 6 when he's talking about sexual sin. And Paul's exhortation is, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price so glorify God in your body. You're tempted to sin. You're tempted to stray off into things that displease the Lord. Remember, the Spirit lives in you. He's called you. You belong to Him. There is a passage in the New Testament where we are warned not to grieve the Spirit. not to live in such a way that the Spirit who has made his residence inside us revolts against the things that we are doing with our bodies. I want to remind you, brother and sister, of that fact. The Spirit rather calls and beckons you to a life of intimacy and fellowship with him in a moment-by-moment way of unbroken contact. It's there in Galatians 5, where he begins to speak, Paul begins to speak about how we overcome sin. And he keeps saying, through communion with the Spirit. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. But if you are led by the Spirit, he says, you're not under the law. You don't, in other words, need to be told what to do, because the Spirit is instructing you. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Of course this is one vital dimension of what it means to be a spirit-filled people, that each one of you lives in ongoing communion with the Spirit of God, seeking to develop a deeper walk with Him, so that you can be said of you, like it was said of the deacons in Acts chapter six, that you are a person full of the spirit. That's what distinguished those men, and it can be a distinguishing mark in your life, the more you walk with him. But friends. It is not just about you as an individual. We're called to be a church that is a a place in which the Spirit dwells. A people among whom the Spirit of God is present. And much as the language in the New Testament is about individuals walking with the Spirit, and I believe that to be a vital part of your spiritual walk, The New Testament also speaks about how the Spirit inhabits His people together in the gathering. It's there again in 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The language there is the plural you, meaning you all. God's Spirit dwells in you together. The reason I'm reminding you of this fact is because I believe, and it it would be my contention, that a church as a gathered community can be more or less full of the Spirit. I think it is possible for a church to become a barren place where the Spirit is no longer there, as in the temple in in Jerusalem In the era of the kings, when it was said that the glory had departed, God's presence had departed because the priests were living such lives that were displeasing to God, I think it is possible that God's glory can depart from his people. And our calling as God's people is therefore to pursue to ask for more, to go on being filled with the Spirit, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, then speaking to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, it's together that we are full of the Spirit, and we must never tire of asking God for more of the Spirit among us, to accomplish in us what only He can do. What does the Spirit do? The mark of the Spirit is life. The word revival. Means coming alive again. It's associated with the work of the Spirit at particular moments in churches and across nations in history, revival, renewal, the fragrance of the presence of God among us. I long for that. I long for it. I recognize my limitations as a pastor and a preacher and a leader. The limitations of all those who stand alongside me in this work here in grace, that we can labor and labor and labor, we can accomplish no spiritual life unless the Spirit breathes upon the work. I was meditating this morning on that Psalm 127, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. We need God, friends. Ah, but when you see the Spirit present, the things that only the Spirit can do among us become evident. Things like an authentic and genuine reverence and awe before the living God and the holiness that results from that where we become repulsed with sin because God is present among us. That's a mark of the Spirit. Things like Christ-likeness Because the Spirit in you will make you look more like Jesus. Things like a passion for mission. Because the Spirit, when He's at work inside of us, will mean that we are dissatisfied with the brokenness and the torturous existence of those outside of Christ who are searching and searching but never finding life. When you see an authentic work of God among His people, you see those things, you see that reverence and awe. You see Christ likeness. You see mission. And I hope what you are beginning to understand here is that as Paul's describing this vision of a temple that's growing up, built on the foundation, joined together, indwelt by the Spirit, a spirit filled church cannot be described purely as something that, can, that, that is a stylistic difference. You know, we use that language easily, don't we? We look at a church and think, well, that's a spirit-filled church or that's a charismatic church because they, have a, they or we have a certain style of worship or a certain way of expressing ourselves and, and our love for the Lord. And of course, I do think that the fruit of the Spirit that work in us is will be expressed in certain visible ways, but you cannot limit this to a style. It's possible to enact a style of being a spirit filled church. While the Spirit of God isn't present because the people are not living for and with Him. The love of God isn't in our hearts. Selfless service, a passion for purity, an earnest zeal to repent of our sin and put it behind us and a longing for the glory of Jesus so that we are unashamed of Him in a world that's growing darker and more hostile to His claims. That's the Spirit-filled church. Never let anyone reduce it to something silly like style. We want the real thing. We want God. The last thing He tells us here is that you are growing into a worldwide temple. He says it, it's emphatically clear, that the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. You're being built, he says, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I am grateful for every life that has been added to this local congregation every person who says that they want to follow Jesus and those who have, as followers of Christ, found us and become part of us because, brothers and sisters, the church is designed to grow. Local churches like ours are designed to grow. It's Christ's intention for us as his people and it is what he's accomplishing around the world. To understand this, you need to understand the great narrative arc of of Scripture as it relates to the temple. Let me explain this to you, and you need to pay attention. When God created the world, he made a garden. And he put inside the garden Adam and Eve to be a priest and a priestess of that temple that was the garden because his very presence was there among them walking in the garden. Their mission was to extend the boundaries of that temple garden and take dominion of the whole world so that the whole world would become full of the presence of God and the order of his rule through his people like you and me. But they failed. When they sinned, a great breach came. And God banished them from the garden so that Adam and Eve were now living in existence, separated from the God who made them and outside of the temple in which they were supposed to dwell. And the entire story of salvation from that point until now has been one of God's intention to break in again by his presence into the world. It begins with God speaking and meeting with individuals, the patriarchs in Genesis. You see encounters like that which Jacob has at the brook with the angel of the Lord or where he has a vision of the ladder and the angels ascending and descending in the place that he names Bethel. You see these encounters. Then you see The people of God gathered together out of slavery and called into the wilderness to be God's people before they enter the promised land and then they build a tabernacle at God's instruction and God comes and lives among them by his presence. The presence of God is returning to his people. And the glory of God was visibly there where the tabernacle was built among them. And then they enter the promised land and some centuries later... David has it in his heart to build a permanent home for God that the tabernacle is no longer appropriate. Now they must build a temple. And his son Solomon builds a temple. And as he dedicates the temple to God, the presence of God visibly falls upon the temple. And his prayer, you can read it in 1 Kings, his prayer as he dedicates the temple to God is of its impact on the nations so that strangers could come to it and discover a relationship with the living God but it grows obsolete and ingrown and crusty and broken and damaged through the ungodliness of the people. Then the next phase of God's plan is that a temple comes among us in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, it said that Christ came and tabernacled among us. In other words, he was a living, breathing, walking temple of the presence of God, the God-man. But even that wasn't the end or the best phase. There were still two more chapters of this story yet to come. And the next chapter was that he would ascend to heaven and plant the church. The people of God, the temple that would inhabit the presence of God, pouring out his spirit upon his people. And there's one more phase yet to come, which I'll get to in a moment. But just pause where we're at in that phase. The the era of the church. Why is this so superior? Why had this captivated the Apostle Paul? So that he renounced his former commitment and devotion to the physical temple in Jerusalem, which would be destroyed within a matter of years, and rather poured his life out for this new reality, the church. And the answer is because this was the mission of God, to fill the whole earth with his glory again. That was what had been prophesied. In places like Habakkuk, where it says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the vehicle through which the presence of God would touch the entire planet would be his new temple that is ever growing and expanding and multiplying into all the earth, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it culminates in the final step which you read about in the book of Revelation. When the end comes and the heavenly Jerusalem or Zion descends from the earth down to earth to fill the earth as a city temple. And it said in that vision, how literal it is, we cannot tell, but it preaches to us of the presence of God filling the earth and fulfilling that prophecy. And here's what it says in Revelation 21. It says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. In other words, all temples become obsolete because the breach between heaven and earth is is finally bridged once and for all and God's presence and his glory fills the planet, redeeming all things. You and I are in that moment on the precipice in which the work of God is rapidly expanding into the world. Reaching into every corner of planet earth so that from the Inuit in Greenland, down to the house churches of China, down into the rapid expansion of the church in sub-Saharan Africa, in every corner of the earth, including here in central London and across the city, you are seeing outposts of the kingdom. You're seeing miniature expressions of God's global temple. And it's been my privilege to play a tiny, tiny role alongside many others in this work and I'm grateful to God that this work is so much bigger than us that if if I were to die tomorrow and maybe if, if worse than that I and Jeremy and Luke were all to die tomorrow and let's say that the church this particular church um, somehow doesn't doesn't manage to survive churches do die, I'm not saying that we're essential but you know, who knows, maybe you all go somewhere else, imagine that were to happen in one sense it doesn't matter because Christ is marching on I love the fact that we get to taste a little bit of his work here in the, eight, eight, the eight years that we've been doing this have been an incredible privilege but I am also sober about the fact that he doesn't need us he doesn't need us at all Jesus is set on his mission. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing is going to stop that. No philosopher, no government, no, no person who sets himself up against this can ever stop it. Jesus is doing this work. And he calls to you. He calls to you. He says, first of all, see and understand this. I hope you've begun to see what the church is and why she is so precious. And, she said, and Christ's call to you is to offer yourself to her, to the work of his temple. I'm not saying that is the sum total of what he wants you to do in this world. Not at all. that every Christian is called to be meaningfully dedicated and devoted to the building of this temple. It starts at the local level. You, deeply embedded into a church community like this, built on the foundation of the gospel, check that that is true first, but then immersing yourself into the life of a church, giving, and serving, and attending, and worshiping, and praying, and whatever else it is that we need to do, And then it can grow beyond that to the kind of more expansive vision in which we recognize that the work of God is is going on a pace outside of these walls and we want to be part of that. So we want to plant churches. We give generously to a church planting movement to enable and mobilize church planting. But that's not enough. We want to do it ourselves, don't we? We want to send people. And I'll tell you in a heartbeat, the greatest challenge, the, the deficit there, is individuals who say and feel called before God, this is my calling, and are ready to lay down everything in the pursuit of that training and preparing and being ready for it. If you're there, come and talk to me, please. And beyond that, there is the global work. I want to encourage you. to let it be a growing fascination of yours to see and to revel in the work of Jesus through history and across the world. It will strengthen you no end to know what Christ has been up to as you read the history and story of the church. And as you familiarize yourself with the reality of what God is doing across the nations. Travel, go and see it. We have privilege these days that we can do that. Meet with believers from elsewhere. Attend conferences if you can. Read the history books. Pray and sign up to newsletters coming from organizations involved in church planting. Take an interest. Pray for this work. Know that it's ongoing. And be a part of it yourself.